Good morning again. In this time of pandemic, it seems like death is in the news every day. Every day there's a report of new cases and how many people have died of the coronavirus. And we're being forced to confront the reality of death every day in a way that for many of us we have not experienced in our lifetime. And while we're going through this and being bombarded with news about death, we're also, we also don't have our normal routines, our normal coping strategies. They've been altered or they're gone. And so we're pressured at all points to analyze our lives. Are we living well? Are we doing the right things? Are we living in the right way, given what's going on? Are we making the right decisions? And then we're also pressured to ask ourselves, am I prepared to die if if that's what's coming for me? That's unpleasant to think about, and it's unpleasant to process through. And honestly, with all these pressures and changes, it can be a bit overwhelming. But fortunately, God's Word helps us to know what we should think about life and what we should think about death. This morning we're back in the book of Philippians where the Apostle Paul is in prison and he's writing to Christians in the city of Philippi in modern-day Greece. And he's writing to them about how even though they're separated, they can still rejoice together and they can still grow together. Here, we're looking at, in our passage today, we're looking at how we can rejoice in life, in death, or in any circumstance that we're in. And all these circumstances can be used to make us grow, to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at our passage this morning. We're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. Now, if you look, uh, we're actually starting the second half of verse 18 today. And the reason is because when they put the verse numbers in, they didn't put them at the best spots. Uh, They did a good job in most places, but here the thought that we're picking up is really starting in the second half of verse 18. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Feel free to follow along with the words on screen or with whatever translation of the Bible you're using. So Philippians chapter 1, starting the second half of verse 18, Apostle Paul writes this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only 
let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we have in your word this morning. Please help us to understand the way we should think about our life and about our death. Teach us, Lord, that truly to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray if there's anyone who doesn't know you, that they will recognize how true it is, how you, through your Son, give us new life. And they rely on him. And so, God, I pray that he may be the one we focus on, that he may be honored, he may be magnified, enlarged, that he may increase in all circumstances and in all situations. Lord, thank you for this time we have. And thank you that you make life worthwhile and give death meaning and purpose. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Please guide our discussion today that we may see you in your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen. In our passage today, we're picking up from where Paul was before. He was talking about some of his circumstances that he had been in prison, but he was rejoicing because the gospel was advancing. And so here he's continuing to rejoice because he knows that he has both human and divine aid. He's realizing the truth that to die is gain. To die is gain. He says in verse 19 about this human age, for I know that through your prayers, and he also sees divine help, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's seeking this deliverance both from being in prison, but also ultimately to go home to be with the Lord. The Holy Spirit is helping him, supplying this deliverance. It's a reminder that we who are believers in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. He has given the Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit sustains our lives from within. And so we should pray for the Spirit's help, pray that each other, that we will grow to rely on the Holy Spirit, that we'll grow spiritually, and pray that when we struggle, we will be delivered in God's timing and in God's way. Paul was confident of this. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11, He, God, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. It's not just the the Spirit working. You also must pray so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of 
many. Here we see a bit of this tension between an earthly deliverance and eternal salvation. Which is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about being released from prison, or is he talking about when he'll finally be released from suffering and go to be with the Lord? And it's kind of a little vague, because before he was talking about prison, but very soon he's going to say that to die is gain. But in the end, it really doesn't matter. As J.A. Motyer says, the Christian need never fear the outcome of events. The Christian doesn't need to fear how things will work out, because God has always got it. He is always in control. I know I've often felt afraid during this time. It's a very confusing situation, time in many of our lives. We don't know, are we doing the right thing? Are we making the right decisions? What's happening next? Is this a right thing to do? Is this a wrong thing to do? But God's deliverance, whether it's here on earth or in the future, His deliverance never fails. And it's a reminder that the full extent of our salvation waits until Christ's return. It lies in the future, till whether we die and go to be with him or until Jesus returns. Yes, we're saved right now, but there's also a sense and we still have to be delivered from our sin nature, and that waits for our death or when Christ comes back. Seeing this, Paul realizes that life or death, that really shouldn't be his main concern. As he says in verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He is eagerly anticipating. He's waiting. He's watching for. He's solely focused on how he lives for Christ. And because he's doing that, he knows that he will not be ashamed, but he will boldly and courageously represent and stand for his Lord. He plans to live this way as he says, now as always, no matter what happens, he is going to stand for Christ. And he hopes by doing that, that Christ will be honored in his body, in his life. He wants Christ to be honored, exalted, magnified, Paul's trying to get the idea that Christ is enlarged. There is more of Christ in his life and more of Christ to be seen through his actions, whether it's how he lives or in the way that he dies. Paul would speak about this in Romans chapter 14. He says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. How does this happen? Well, he says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We're rightly handling God's word. We're teaching him. We're sharing him the way he's revealed himself in scripture. And we're told what this looks like. In the book of Acts, we see that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. There's nothing extraordinary about them, and so they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Because their lives were focused on Christ, they could see, oh, this person has been changed by Jesus. 
And so in our lives, life and death may be a big concern. We're in a situation with sickness in the world. And our preferences, our desires, our hopes and dreams, our routines, the thing we're used to, they've been pushed aside or pushed down the road. But Paul, even in the midst of that for him, remember he was in prison. His focus was on glorifying God. As he says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God. Bring Him glory and praise in your body. Our life is to be about bringing God glory. And if that's what our life is about, then we can say what Paul says in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If our life is about God's glory, if our life is about Jesus, then life or death are equally desirable for the Christian, and we can have joy in both. If we're alive, we're privileged to have the opportunity to serve our Lord. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We owe everything to Christ. He is our Lord and Master, and everything of value can be found in him. Everything of eternal value is connected to Christ. On the other hand, dying is better. Dying is a gain. Paul thinks that because it would free him from his earthly troubles. He'd be able to rejoice in Christ's presence. Paul's passion was to possess, to know, to enjoy more and more of Jesus Christ. And the best place for that to happen is heaven. As Roger Morlang says, For believers, death holds no fear. For death leads directly into the presence of Christ. Paul is confident that even if he was martyred, even if he was killed, that would bring God glory because he wants what is best for God's kingdom. He's truly living out the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As Sean McDonough explains, Paul's life is not a matter of seeking his own comfort or advancement. It is all about seeking the advancement of Christ's kingdom. So, Paul's joy, whether he's living and serving or in death. And he's really wrestling, though, between these two. He says in verse 23 that he is hard-pressed, he's undecided, he's hemmed in, he's struggling about whether, whether life or death is better. Because if he lives, he can continue serving. But if he dies, he gets to go home to be with Jesus. He goes into this conflict a bit in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. As he says in verse 23, his desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. When Christians die, they go immediately into God's presence. Their soul, their spirit, the immaterial part of them goes to be with their Lord. 
If you were watching last Sunday, we were talking about 1 Corinthians 15, which talked about when our bodies will be raised from the dead. At Christ's return, then those soul spirits that have been with the Lord will be reconnected with their bodies and renewed, restored bodies. And so, yes, that glorious day will come. That's the resurrection we long for. But for believers who die in the Lord now, their soul, their spirit goes to be with Christ. Paul is confident of this. As he says, it's better to depart, to leave, and be with Christ. It's better than this life because we get to be with the Lord. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what that will look like. We're not told a whole lot about what that period uh, will be like in Scripture. But for the Christian, that description is enough. Christ is our joy, and we get to be with Christ throughout eternity. So what that means is exactly what Paul says. Death is just a departure. It's packing up our tent and going back home. It's taking a ship from a brief stop in a port and sailing back to where we belong. It's getting on the plane after a short layover to head home. In the words of a popular song called The Wayfaring Stranger or Poor Wayfaring Stranger, I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just going over home. They're talking about the Jordan River and just saying it's just over there. It's in the distance. It's not far. It's a short departure to end up home. But how should we think about this? Well, it's possible we have loved ones that we've lost, that we knew had a relationship with Jesus and knew the Lord, but now they're gone. It is appropriate, and we should. We should mourn them and miss them because we feel the grief of their loss. We miss having them with us. But at the same time, within our mourning and grief, there should be a deep joy because we can know that they are experiencing pleasure at Christ's side. And they're experiencing it through eternity, uninterrupted. And yes, while we mourn and miss them, we know that they're in some place better. But it's also a chance for us to look at ourselves and ask ourselves about our own departure. What will your departure be like? When you die, will you go to be with Christ? The only way that that can happen is if you have a relationship with him. See, there's a problem. We sin, we rebel, we do things against what God has said we should do. And what that means is that we're separated from him and that we will be separated for all eternity. And what we need is someone who can restore our relationship with God, who can pay the penalty for what we've done so that we can be connected to him because we can't do it ourselves. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus. He lived the life that we couldn't live, and then he died on our behalf. So now, if we repent, if we turn from sin and we believe in Jesus Christ, we can be restored to a right relationship with God. We can know him. We can have this kind of confidence that Paul has. We can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'd encourage you, if you are unsure about what that means or you want to know more about that, that you reach out. You can email me, 
Again, my email is jtoon at eshorebaptist.org. I'd be happy to tell you about that. Or maybe the person who suggested this video to you. Uh, Get in touch with that person and ask them, how can I know Jesus Christ? What's this relationship the pastor's talking about? How can I have this hope and this joy that Christ brought Paul? And I'm sure whoever sent it to you would be happy to have that conversation with you. For Christians, for believers in Christ, we need to ask ourselves if we actually believe this, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We talked a little bit about this in the past couple weeks, and I know sometimes I struggle with that because I, I like what's here. I'm not ready to go. But that's just revealing that in those moments that my priorities are not in line because my priorities should be to know Christ in whatever way he wills, in whatever place that he wants me to be. That was what Paul's priority was. In the next couple of verses, he talks about that. He knows that the way of Jesus is a way of service. And if that's true, he's convinced then that he's going to survive so he can remain, he can continue encouraging the Philippians to grow spiritually. He says to remain in the flesh in this body is more necessary on your account. It's needful. It's better for him to stay alive and to serve other Christians. And so he's convinced that I will remain, continue with you all for your progress, your advancement, your growth in the gospel and your growth in your relationship with Christ, and that you may have joy in faith, even in suffering. And he says, so that you will have ample cause, you'll be able to glory, rejoice, You'd be able to boast when Paul returned from prison. A bit later in the book, he expresses confidence that this is what is going to happen, that he will be able to see the Philippians again. We may wonder, where is he getting this confidence from? Has God told him that he's going to be released from prison? Is he just reasoning this? That's what he seems to say, is he thought about it, whether life or death was better, and the Philippians need him so they can grow spiritually, so he's convinced he'll be released. But whether God had revealed it or he just reasoned it and was assuming is not really important. We don't really know. What we're seeing here, though, is a model of a service-driven life. This is incredible here. Paul is valuing the church's growth over his own desires. His desire is, I've served for a long time. I'm ready to go home and be with the Lord. But he was willing to postpone heaven to care for the needs of the church. He put his desires aside so that he could serve his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I know that I'm a pastor, but sometimes I'm tempted to put things that I want and that I desire in front of other Christians. Well, that would help that person, but I really want to do this right now. This is profound humility from Paul. And it's a challenge to us. Do we put our fellow Christians and church members, do we put their interests and desires above our own? Or do we just look out for ourselves? Paul put aside his desire for heaven so that he could serve and see others know Jesus more. He's doing this because even though to die is gain, there's still a way he should live. And what he's discovering is that to live worthy is Christ. To live worthy is Christ. In verse 27, he's transitioning from talking about himself to what he now expects from the church. 
Now, I want to be clear about what he says here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The point in your outline, if you're using it, says to live worthy is Christ. By the way, if you want one of those outlines, you can find it available on the church's website, or we also send them out by email during the week. I do a midweek email if you want to get that. But regardless, look carefully at those words, to live worthy is Christ. And, and hear me what I'm saying and not saying. I'm not saying that Paul wants them to live a certain way to earn their salvation, their relationship with God. That goes against everything else he said. No, what he's saying is, if Christ has done something for us, this should be our response. If we believe this gospel, this good news that Christ lived for us, that he died on our behalf to restore us to God, then there should be a different way that we live in response. It should be a worthy life. As he says, only let your manner of life be worthy. Only the Christian life can be boiled down to this. This is most important about the Christian life. All embracing at all costs, do this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. May it be worthy of what Christ has done for us. Now, some people looking at this, some translators, they translate that worthy of the gospel a little differently, and they translate it as behave as citizens worthy. And if that's correct, that's really interesting, because the city of Philippi, where the Philippians lived, was what was known as a Roman colony. And what that meant is that almost everyone in the city, or at least the, the, the men, the landowners, were automatically a citizen of Rome, a citizen of the Roman Empire. Not everyone who lived in the land the Roman Empire controlled was a citizen. In fact, in most places of the empire, it was a rare thing to meet someone who was actually a citizen of the empire and had the rights and privileges that came with it. But in Philippi, everyone there was, and that was a very strong source of pride for them. But Paul's reminding them that their true citizenship belongs somewhere else. Christ, not Caesar, should be the Philippians' role model. Jesus should have their primary allegiance. And it's a reminder to us that we have a high calling to fulfill. We're not really Americans or Pennsylvanians. We are really citizens of heaven. We are representing our King, our Lord, Jesus. As Paul would write later in Philippians, he says, but our citizenship is not in Philippi, not in Rome, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we are to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. But what does that look like? Well, what does that mean? What are we supposed to do, Paul? Well, he tells us here. He says, whether I come to see you or an absent, whether he's present or he's not with them, Paul wants the Philippians, he wants to hear that they are standing firm, that they are steadfast. And he's telling them that in order to be that way, to stand firm, to be steadfast in whatever happens, that that's grounded in unity. So he says, standing firm in one spirit. If we're to stand firm, if we are to represent our Lord, well, then we need one another. We need other brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying here that we are standing firm in one spirit. We're united in the Holy Spirit. He's the one who saves us and connects us to Christ. He also says we're united in one mind. How we feel, how we react should be uh, impacted by Christ, not by our desires. 
We should love what God loves. We should reject what displeases Him. We should share our emotions, desires, decisions, reflecting our Lord and not our preferences. When we disagree with another Christian, that means we don't get angry, but we seek to understand and work through how we can unite together for God's kingdom purposes. That's what Paul says. He wants the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, that they strive, they fight for the gospel. They fight side by side. And that's a convicting statement because it often seems that Christians more often attack each other rather than work together. And I know I've been guilty of that. But that is the attitude opposite of what Paul writes about. Throughout his letters, he doesn't spend a lot of time attacking Christians. He spends time attacking people who claim to know Christ but are misleading others, sure. But for those in the church, he talks a whole lot about unity and staying one together in our purpose. Staying one, having unity in action, as it says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that means that we're working together, we're fighting together. As J. Amatyar says, the church which is experiencing unity must be a church without passengers. I really like that phrase, a church without passengers. This is not a pleasure cruise. If we're a part of a church, we're on a mission together. We are here for a purpose, and each one of us has a role to play. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how the body is one and has many members. And the members of the body, though there are many, there's many different parts of the body, they're all one body, and so it is with Christ. We are different, but we are united by our common faith in the gospel. We can have unity because we share the same belief about Jesus and about why that's important. If someone believes that Jesus is God's son, someone believes he's fully God and fully man, and that it was his life, death, and resurrection, that is the only way that we can be restored to God. By turning from sin, believing in that, then we can work together for gospel purposes. We can unite together for what matters most of all in God's sight. If we agree on Jesus, we can work through our difficulties. So in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter what you look like, what your preferences are. It doesn't really matter who you vote for or whether you think the government is doing too much or not enough in this pandemic. It doesn't really matter what sports team you cheer for. What does matter is how you think about Jesus and the impact that that makes in your life. For the Christian, for the church, that's what matters. Because if we're on the same page there, then we may disagree on some of those other things, but we can work together for God's kingdom purposes, for results that not just last our lifetime, but for a kingdom that will last for all eternity. We have a greater purpose united in Him. We can stand firm, even in the face of persecution or if we're under attack. This emphasis on unity appears throughout Paul's letters. Next week, we'll look at chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Paul will write the same things that we're reading in the letter of Ephesians. 
He says in chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. There's that word. Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like you have humility, gentleness, patience. You bear with one another in love. You're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's that connection again, walking worthy with unity. It's a reminder to us that we cannot live for Christ on our own. Maybe you're a Christian, but you're not really connected to a church home. I'd encourage you to try to reach out to some people now, and especially when this time of um, social distancing is over, to seek a church family to be a part of. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you live for the Lord. And Paul is telling us that, that we are supposed to be united to one another. For those who are members of this church, I'd encourage you to not let social distancing make you isolate your relationships. Take the time to reach out and encourage one another. I know I was very encouraged by two encounters I had with brothers and sisters in Christ this week. One I'm thinking of was a, a brother in Christ who took time to send me a very encouraging email that was uh, very helpful. It brightened the day I was working on and helped me persevere in the work I had to do. Another was a good conversation I had with a sister in Christ where she was telling me about how she was seeking to uh, share the gospel with somebody, but through providing uh, masks for them. And hopefully that will open the door for a conversation. Both of those were such encouraging conversations and were a blessing to hear and an encouragement to my faith. We truly do need one another. Because when we're united, verse 28 tells us we won't be frightened in anything by our opponents. We'll be standing firm in our convictions. We're not going to be frightened or like startled horses in a storm. That's the image Paul's going for here. You know, when there's a big storm coming, in some places they let horses run free in the pasture of the area around. And the reason they do that is because in the storm, the horse might kick and injure someone else or hurt itself when it gets startled by the loud noises. But Christians aren't like that. Instead, we remain firm, steadfast, and in control. We're not frightened in anything. There's nothing that any person can do that can really shake us. A Christian relying on God acts out of God-centered courage and not man-centered fear. And this courage in the face of our opponents shows that our strength is from the Lord. As the book of Hebrews says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As Paul points out, anyone who's opposing believers, it's a sign to them, an omen of their destruction. They are on the way to eternal destruction, and they're convicted by the steadfast example of believers, because our standing firm is a sign to us of our salvation that comes from God. When unbelievers see us living for something that endures and that lasts, it reflects well on Christ and the difference he can make. During this time, many people are asking questions about death and seeing, does someone have the answers? And so it's a challenge for us. Are we spreading attitudes of division and fear, or are we showing the difference that Christ made? Are we showing that we respond differently to trials and adverse situations than the rest of the world does? Because that will make a difference for his kingdom. Because believers 
are sustained by God's grace, and we are assured of our final salvation. Before we were unable to meet together, we were studying through the Sermon on the Mount, and one passage we read was this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul wraps up this section by talking about how believers will suffer for Christ's sake. Troubles are to be expected, and it's a privilege to experience them. Again, Roger Morlang says, what the world considers dishonorable, Christians consider an honor because it is for him. It honors Christ. As he says in verse 29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe and have faith in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. And Paul says, you're engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. A worthy life in God's eyes is a life exposed to suffering. Suffering and faith, belief, they're both gifts of God. Paul experienced both. He had spiritual conflict, and the Philippians had seen this. When he first came to Philippi, he and his friend Silas, they were uh, roughed up by a crowd. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown in prison. They saw how Paul experienced suffering. And he's telling them, you'll have the same conflict, the same struggle. It's almost like he's saying, and I think we could take this as evidence. One of the ways that we know that we're a Christian is because we believe in Jesus and we're suffering. That's just what he's saying here. It's been granted to you to not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering plays an important role in the life of a Christian. We should be more nervous when we're not suffering. That's why in the book of Acts, the disciples say they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So, how are we to live? What does it mean to live worthy? Well, maybe it means like this phrase from 1 Timothy 6.12, to fight the good fight of the faith. Brothers and sisters, we can live in Christ because we spend every moment in his presence. If we have a relationship with Jesus, that means the Holy Spirit is living in us. Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is living in us. And when we die, we get to go home to be with him. This life is just a preparation for eternity. Death is going home. And what that means is that no matter what's going on, whether it's a pandemic or, or the sun is shining, we can live life with confidence. We can live life with joy. Because this life is about Christ, and death is about Him too, because it's we're going to see Him. In Paul's words, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As we grow in understanding that, that means we can rejoice at all times because Jesus Christ, he alone is worthy. Let's pray and then we'll respond to this good news with worship. Lord, thank you again for this time in your word. 
I pray that you will convict us, drive us to recognize that we can live in you. And to die would be gain. So Lord, give us the confidence to face what lies ahead. Give us trust in you to reflect your goodness in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, relying upon your spirit. Lord, thank you for being with us. Thank you for encouraging us in every situation. May you get the glory from our lives because you are worthy and to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's in your name I pray. Amen.